1: Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Coming up uh, today, I've been out and about on the streets of London with a sort of tour that begins where the Queen was born, uh, takes in Buckingham Palace... Horse Guards Parade, uh, Westminster Hall and Westminster Abbey, and we're going to look in particular then at the history of Westminster Hall, uh, because it's such an extraordinary building, I think everyone forgets it, they just think the uh, Houses of Parliament is all the the green benches of the Commons, and you know, they they, only date back to the 50s. Uh, So that's coming up, and our big thing in just a moment, but first, as ever, on a Tuesday, we kick off with... Meet the Cerberus of Columnists... (laughs) The Janus of Journalism
2: and the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion.
0: It's alive, it's alive, it's alive!
3: Finkelvich, with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio.
1: Yes, and here they are. Good morning to Danny Finkelstein. Morning, Danny. Good morning, good
4: morning.
1: And good morning to David Aronovich. Morning, David. Good morning, Matt. Thank you for that, David. It's a good, uh, good voiceover uh, audition. Now, David, we're going to start with you because you are the only. You've, this is this is what you said in your email to me this morning. You're the only person in Britain who's never met the Queen and has no anecdote about her.
2: Yeah, I must be the only person um, for, uh, and it was all it was all completely predictable. And I'm not arguing against it. You just accept it with a degree of kind of resignation. But everybody else in Britain appears to have met the Queen and to have something to say about it, and had to have said it on one outlet or another. Uh, and I'm feeling very, very left out. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, maybe, 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 maybe well, I mean, you have other anecdotes that maybe we can refer- return to another time. Uh, D- uh, D- uh, Danny, you, you, you did
4: meet the Queen. Yeah, I met the Queen a couple of times. They're not, uh, to say I had an anecdote about it would be a massively over-egg it. Um, I suppose the most interesting times have been more when I've been in the presence of the Queen rather than when I met her, so at the state opening of Parliament. And yesterday, I had the honour of being able to attend the uh, presentation of the address to the King, which was quite a moving occasion, if you like that sort of thing, which I think probably David doesn't and I do. Um, so I, um, I, 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 I met the Queen once when she opened my school after it burned down. Um, And on another occasion, we're a big media reception. Um, uh, And uh, both of those, I think, are more indications of the sheer bulk of sort of small, (laughs) small kind of meetings that the Queen had to have in her life than they are anecdotes about me uh, meeting her. Uh, The the, the most important uh, moment in that media reception came more from the fact that, Prince William came over to talk to me um, because he wanted to know how I thought Aston Villa were going to do that season. <laughs> um, the, uh, the Queen did not ask after Aston Villa.
2: By the way, can I just can I just say it's a complete libel what uh, Danny's just said about me not liking that kind of event. That's not the problem at all. I don't get invited to that kind of event. That's the problem. Fair enough. Are you?
1: I would you? Are you a Republican, David?
2: No, I'm not. I mean, I, w- I would have been when I was younger. Yeah. Um, uh, but I absolutely see the utility of the constitutional monarchy in Britain. You know, all the kind of usual guff which people say about it, I think broadly holds true. Uh, and I don't have any problem with King Charles. Uh, and I never, and I haven't had for really quite a long time. Uh, I think at one case, in one situation, I even I've even written that. Uh, so I'm not an anti-monarchist in the sense that's not where I would put my priority. At all. And there are lots of countries like ours that have constitutional monarchy. And as I understand what uh, King Charles wants to do, which is going to slim the thing down so you get less of the kind of Andrew stuff around, uh, then that would be good. And insofar as I don't have to listen to anybody else talking about Meghan Markle and Harry, uh, if he can manage that, that would be a blessing.
1: Uh, the, the messages are flooding in. Colin says, "Please tell David I've never met the Queen either, and likewise I have no anecdotes to share." So, if you have no <laughs> anecdotes to share, do get in touch <laughs> and share them. In all the <laughs> Not you share, share your anecdotes about having no anecdotes. <laughs> uh, then, um, uh, well, Patria, near
2: misses, near misses with the Queen would do, yeah, that, Patricia, wouldn't it?
1: Patricia says, "I'm with David. Are the Queen? Feeling very left out." Best wishes, Patricia. Do get into touch. Start a message uh, with the word times. So let's. um I'm very interested in your both of your views on on what's been happening the past, uh, well, uh, 24 hours or so, really, with these uh, these protests we've seen. And the police seemingly to over... I mean, the police clearly have a very difficult job in these situations. But uh, there was the guy who shouted at Prince Andrew in uh, Scotland was arrested, somebody who shouted, he's not my king, has been arrested. And then uh, a bit earlier on, I spoke to Paul Powellsland. He's the barrister who was questioned by police after holding up a blank piece of paper in Westminster. This is what he told me about why he did it.
0: When I saw other people um, being arrested or being threatened for just peaceful expressions of opinion, uh, I realised that I need to go and express my opinion to make sure that that is still allowed. And actually, it's been very interesting because it it has seemed to have had the desired effect. Um, The kind of media furore and public backlash over what happened to me yesterday, but also a lot of the other protesters, means the police have now issued a statement saying we are not going to interfere with the right to people's freedom of expression. So actually, I'm going to go back down there this evening with a sign saying not my king to confirm that we can do that. And that's important because now everyone knows that they're allowed to express their opinion around this time. So we've got uh, the Metropolitan Police in
1: slightly misjudging the situation shock, Danny.
4: (laughs) Well, slightly. Uh, I I do agree that it was a misjudgment in the couple of occasions. I don't think it was a metropolitan police. Actually, if I have understood it correctly, it was Scottish police. Um, no, this, I, was, uh,
1: this guy, that guy we just heard from Paul, was in. He yes, was in Parliament Square he, and then Downing the Street.
4: He wasn't arrested, um, and um, he held up a blank piece of paper, sought clarification, and wasn't arrested. But I do. I. I basically think that the. Um, the uh, we have to keep on our guard to ensure that. Uh, these um that protests are allowed i personally obviously hope that it they don't take place in any large number if individuals want to express their uh, view they can there's always a balance by the way you know say with a funeral uh, there would obviously be a balance when someone's if someone heckled somebody else's funeral uh, to be struck between the distress that has caused and the statement that's made but i think in the case of the uh, proclamation of a new king, unquestionably you have to allow people, otherwise all the um, all the kind of uh, statements and everything don't mean anything. All the questions that are asked the public and everything in the accession procedures and ceremonies don't mean anything. You're unquestionably you have to allow people to protest, even though I hope that they don't do so. But in a, although it's important to ensure... Uh, at the margin that these are allowed, uh, there's neither been very large protests nor has there been very large scale arrests. Um, he was examining a principle that's perfectly reasonable, but I don't think one should pile onto the police forces for making a massive misjudgment since they don't appear to have done that yet, So they might do.
1: I mean, he was, I think, he, he did ask the police if he wrote Not My King on the piece of paper. They, I think, they told him he would arrest him, but then okay, they
4: asked, he asked a police officer, yes, exactly, yeah, yeah he might be arrested. Who knows how he asked that question, who to, and what the exact answer was. Um, The truth is, he wasn't arrested. He didn't write it on a piece of paper. Um, I don't think he's making an unreasonable uh, political point. I'm just saying let's not Kind of call for statements from the commissioner and uh, you know yeah. about the terrible uh, wrong that was done to this person because it wasn't. I think he has established an important principle. We have to get what happened in proportion.
1: The main, main reaction actually from when I was speaking to him, David, was that people seemed to have got very cross that we were even discussing it. Uh, um, <laughs> that uh, trawling the bottom of the barrel by giving so much air time. Uh, no one is forcing this solicitor to attend a funeral procession. Why are you giving this idiot the time of day? Are you all Republicans? As if Um, defending the right uh, to free speech automatically uh, equaled being a Republican.
2: I mean, these moments uh, are moments of mass-conscripted piety, aren't they, in which which our emotions are prescribed to us by... Uh, you know, uh, bits of the media and the way in which everything's described, you know, the Queen coming back past the crowds who have loved her for 70 years, et cetera. And you're all supposed to buy into that. So anybody not buying into that is a bit like the guy who's holding up the End is Nigh banner on Oxford You know on Oxford Street, et cetera. Um, and I th- uh, it looks at, um, at best a bit eccentric and at worst a little bit rude as if you'd gone along for some people to a church where there's a funeral service being held and held up a banner there etc so people also so some people will also see it as being impolite etc and some people will simply want everybody to be conscripted into the same uh, amount of piety uh, and as ever the the main thing is a bit of balance here uh, take take the woman who was um who was moved on in edinburgh with the banner she had two bits of her uh, placard one bit was abolish the monarchy which i thought you have no business moving somebody on because they've got a placard saying that. That's absolutely her right to hold it. But the other one had a swear word with imperialism attached to it. And I thought, I'm not totally keen on seeing that word being held up but, at a ceremony such as this. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, I'm not in favour of arresting her. So there was I had a, I had a series sort of kind of mixed feelings about it. But Danny, you want to say something?
4: Yeah, No, no, I, 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 that's very judicious. And these are... Because I, I, I think these are questions of balance. If you... were for example to appear at a um, religious parade and uh, put a big thing saying uh, stop immigration for example Um, I think that I don't suppose that uh, Paul Paslan would have turned up there to check people weren't being stopped so I think you've got to you've got to um, that there are levels of behavior at public events which you which the police do have to police, right? And they're making very fine judgments. They won't always get them right. I, I, I think he is. It is absolutely correct that people be allowed to hold up a sign saying "Not my king." I hope that they don't do so. I feel somewhat differently to people um, who would who would do that. Um, when, when, there's, when the funeral parade is on, I think that is inappropriate. Um, whether or not it then should be illegal is very, very difficult to, um, to, to determine because as it would be in any funeral, I think one should err on the side of allowing people's free speech unless it absolutely yeah. catastrophically interrupts everybody else's um, ability, such as standing in front of the coffin or that yeah. sort of thing.
1: Yeah, and I suppose that's the thing and one of the things that clearly the police are going to be worried about is when we've seen things like the climate protests of the last few days you know seeking to yeah. disrupt the funeral um, where there are plenty of other ways of making the same point. I suppose that's the um that's the we thing. should
4: lean towards free speech. He's right to make this point. It doesn't seem to me as though a mass infringement of free speech is going ahead, but nevertheless, uh, it's worthwhile uh, policing, as, as it were, um, uh, human rights policing it at the margin.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, all uh, lots of people getting in touch saying they haven't met the Queen, David. You'll be pleased to know. Uh, our... How come? <laughs> how come? <laughs> Mare, how come? Free... Nobody on the media has discovered this. Mary speakers. said, <laughs> I've, I've never met to the to Queen, the last but last few... I've seen her at a distance. Does that count? Catherine, uh, I think possibly you are ex- excluded from this group, though. Uh, Catherine says, I've never met the Queen or any of them. Are they avoiding me? Uh, and then someone <laughs> on the text says, I thought I'd met the Queen when I was a toddler, but was then informed it was my great-grandmother who always sat in a high-back chair at the top of the room any uh, any family Christmas and also had the same hairstyle. So, yeah, uh,
2: Mac... Can, can we add? To, can we add to this at a moment? I put when we were discussing this for the Times podcast a year ago, and they said, "What kind of stuff should we do in the uh, trap in the eventuality?" I said, "One of the things I'm really interested in is the fact that almost everybody has had a dream about the Queen, and yeah. what that will tell you is an awful lot about people's unconscious or semi-conscious feelings about the Queen. They would not make that." Uh, 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 a podcast, as far as I can tell, I could never really get an answer why. Probably because they thought it was a stupid idea,
1: but I don't think. It's oh, a we'd stupid take idea. it. All stupid ideas but, welcome on this show. We're doing a text-in on people who haven't met the
2: <laughs> Well, no, well, but if you, if you want to, but if you want to ask people texting about their dreams
4: have
1: you dreamt about the queen fine have Eight, you seven, dreamt about the queen
4: that is real that is re- i haven't i don't think unless you unless you scored the uh, winning goal in the 2012 champions league final i don't think i have dreamt about it <laughs>
2: have you not have you not i So here's an admission, <laughs> no. and then you'll wish you never you then you'll wish you never had me on this show 872 dream ever concerned the queen and qu- princess margaret right well, that, um, that might be uh, for another it a day. Long, it was a long time ago. Yeah, and Matt, I won't be—I won't be the only one. Right, very now, good.
1: Now, now, now finally, <laughs> I think we'll move on as much as anything. Um, let's turn our attention to something that happened in politics uh, at end of last week, been slightly overshadowed but the decision by what well, we assume it's the new Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng and the new Prime Minister uh, Liz Truss to sack Tom Scholar as the uh, permanent secretary. That it turns out, not so permanent secretary of the Treasury. Um, following complaints about Treasury orthodoxy, uh, um, which I think basically means um, making the numbers add up. How concerned should we be about this, Danny? I
4: I am pretty concerned about it. There was an article in The Times today, which anyone who's uh, taking part in this um, political uh, discussion should read by Theodore Agnew, arguing in favour of former minister in charge of efficiencies. He feels quite strongly about Tom Scholar and it's worthwhile reading as part of the debate. Certainly, I read it and I I, I found it interesting because he holds a different view to me. So my view is that the Treasury orthodoxy that Liz Truss and Quasi Quasi most object to is that one plus one equals two, uh, and, I, and I disagree <laughs> with them. Um, that, so what they, they basically, actually, to be a bit more serious, they, they basically believe uh, in a dynamic model of the economy, which both the Treasury and the OBR do not believe in, which is that if you cut um, taxes, you're going to get sufficient growth to pay for most of the tax cuts. Um, and they also want a growth-orientated approach. So Theodore Agnew made different points about Tom Scholar, which were a little harder to judge, which went to the question of whether or not the the um, Treasury could be brought to see things in a more dynamic way. And it's not unusual for people, I suppose, to take over organisations and decide they want to move people about. And you can't say for certain that's wrong, but all I can say really is that my uh, experience with Tom Scholar, from a, the point of view of someone in my case who believes that we ought to be moving towards a, uh, a you know a state that uh, to, to more limited spending and uh, making sure that people have a sufficiently large amount of their uh, take-home income to, to keep um, I've always seen the treasury orthodoxy is on the side of that I think in the long term the only hope for um, conservatives who believe in a sort of entrepreneurial economy in which there's quite a large private sector is precisely treasury spending controls and while and it's easy to dismiss those as unimaginative so i think this was not a very well thought through move that they won't get from it what they hope to get uh from it it's hard to be sure that i'm right about tom scholar because i don't have dealt with him extensively but i'm certainly surprised that's their judgment and i worry about both what it says about their view of reality, but also what it says about their view of the civil service, which is you can't want the civil service... The civil service ought to be saying, well, Minister, here's what actually happens, um, and here's how your policy yeah. would actually work. And, uh, David, and I think you to say, for that reason... To little...
1: Oh, yeah, David, your, your take on this? Um,
2: is it really the case that what has happened in the 12 years that the Conservative Party has been in power in terms of the economy, insofar as it's gone wrong, is the fault of Tom Scholar and the Treasury. Is that really, is that really what they're thinking? Because that is pretty much what is being briefed out. It was briefed out when Liz Tr- during Liz Truss's leadership campaign that he would be fired. It's implicit... Well, it's not implicit. It's explicit in Lord Agnew's piece this morning. It says everything that hasn't happened in the Treasury is effectively the fault of the Treasury as an institution and the civil servants who serve it. Uh, and therefore, he says right at the beginning of the piece, the departure of Tom Scholar is to be celebrated, not just to be, you know, this is a perfectly decent thing, but it is to be celebrated, presumably since he will be replaced okay. by somebody who is thought to be far more ideologically consistent with the mm. go- with this particular oh. government's position, as opposed to any other government, which was also Conservative, which preceded it. Um, and is—it strikes me as being just another step in this party saying, the essentially, l'État se sont nous. We are the state. We, we make the rules. We do the stuff, etc. It's all going to happen our way, etc. And whatever is our kind of latest fad, etc., is the beat to which everybody must march. And if they don't, or if they're not sufficiently zealous in it, then we're going to replace them. Um, and so it feels ominous to me.
1: Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich there. And, of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Redbox. Up next, well, we go on a bit of a historic walk around London.
2: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this.
3: The Big Thing on Times Radio.
1: So, ladies, this evening, Queen Elizabeth's coffin will lead Edinburgh and travel to London, where it will line in state in Westminster Hall. Uh, so let's go live now to Times Radio's Callum MacDonald, who's in Scotland, and he explain what's happening today. Callum.
3: Good morning Matt, welcome to the Royal Mile in Edinburgh, it is a bright and sunny and I'm pleased to say a relatively warm morning this morning on the Royal Mile. I am at what is, I suppose really the back exit to St Giles Cathedral where the coffin of the Queen is lying in rest. And even as I speak to you people are filing out this back door having been inside to pay their respects to Her Majesty the Queen who will be there, what's the time now, just after 11, so she'll be there for another sort of five hours or so um, uh, as she lies at rest for the people of Edinburgh here and indeed from further afield perhaps who have travelled to to filter through slowly, take a really peaceful moment in what is a really intimate cathedral at St Giles. It doesn't feel massive, it doesn't feel like a cavernous cathedral at all. Actually, it's really intimate when you get into that space and you are just feet away from the coffin of Her Majesty the Queen, um, surrounded by, of course, the Royal Company of Archers, the Sovereign's Bodyguards in Scotland, uh, as well as um, some police from Police Scotland as well, uh, dressed in ceremonial uniforms in there. We understand that thousands upon thousands of people have made their way through St Giles Cathedral in the last... Uh, well, overnight, really, since since uh, the doors opened to the public yesterday at sort of 4 or 5 o'clock. And indeed, the opportunity remains in place. We understand that the queue to get through at the moment is perhaps around two to three hours, um, which is not as bad as some estimates overnight. Um, Actually, people are are moving pretty freely through there now. Uh, We're keeping an eye on on when when the opportunity to join the queue will will end because later on today at 5 o'clock, the Queen's Coffin will be moved from St. Giles Cathedral to Edinburgh Airport. That suggests the doors will probably be closed from about 4.30, and so if the queue's about three hours long... You need to be in there by kind of one half past one, um, if you're hoping to to get through St Giles Cathedral today. Uh, and yes, the 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 final journey of the Queen then continues. Indeed, this is the last chapter of the of this of or the last page of the Scottish chapter, because later on uh, the coffin will be moved to Edinburgh Airport, uh, and the Princess Royal, Princess Anne, will accompany the coffin at that point as it makes its journey to RAF Northolt. Um, that's at six o'clock, uh, arriving in London shortly before seven. The coffin will then move to Buckingham Palace, where it will be met by King Charles III and Camilla, the Queen Consort, who will be back from Belfast by that point. Their tour of the UK is continuing at really breakneck speed, if we're honest. Uh, Other members of the royal family will be there at Buckingham Palace as well. There'll be a guard of honour, there'll be a ceremony really to receive the coffin. And it will be watched over in Buckingham Palace before then being moved tomorrow from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Hall, where the Queen then lies in state for four days. As you're mentioning Matt, the queues in London expected to be really spectacularly long, really, really long waits to to filter past uh, the Queen in the coming days before, of course, the state funeral on Monday.
1: Uh, Callum McDonough, thank you very much for that. Callum McDonough joining us uh, live from Edinburgh this morning. And uh, as he was uh, mentioning there, sort of attention turning to London over the next uh, day or two. So what I thought I'd do is I, I, I sort of went on a, on a walk around London a couple of days ago, uh, taking in some of the, the history of uh, Queen Elizabeth's reign and some of the key events over the coming days. And maybe maybe some... Some facts that you might not know, and uh, and uh, yeah, just from my own reflections as well. So this is what happened when I went uh, for a walk about uh, around uh, London, starting at the birthplace of Queen Elizabeth II in a very smart corner of Mayfair. So here is Bruton Street, just off Barclays Square, just turning right. At the Bentley showroom there's a Ferrari and a Rolls Royce showroom further down. And this is just a smart street in Mayfair in 2022, lots of smart cars on the sides of the roads, boutique fashion houses and restaurants where an espresso coffee will cost you £3. And then sandwiched between the entrance to apartment blocks and the sort of smart club or restaurant which has an intelligible logo and a stern man guarding the door. There's a plaque on this site at 17 Bruton Street to the townhouse of the Earl of Strathmore and Kinghorn where Elizabeth Alexandra Mary Windsor later to become Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II was born on the 20th of April 1926. There's another plaque that marks a silver jubilee in 1977 So the block was changed, essentially, it was was knocked down, the townhouse was knocked down and replaced uh, between uh, 1926 and 1977. That's where she was born, back in 1926. A difficult delivery, apparently, the official bulletin at the time referred to medical complications and a certain line of treatment which we now know to mean that she was born by Caesarea. And yet, she was not born to be Queen, of course. Her grandfather on her father's side, George V, would give way to her uncle, Edward VIII, only for him to abdicate in 1936, 10 years after she was born in this street. It meant that her father, George VI, would then become king and later she queen. Not that she was immune to or unfamiliar with life in the royal family. Indeed, there was lots of speculation when she was born here in 1926. Crowds gathered on this very spot in Mayfair. The Daily Sketch at the time announced a possible Queen of England was born yesterday. They were perhaps more right than they realised at the time. Her grandfather loved welcoming her to Buckingham Palace, where I'm going to head now. So here we have made it to Buckingham Palace where of course the Queen lived for so much of her 70 year reign, albeit viewing this as maybe the, the office. For Windsor Castle was the place out of town and Balmoral was the place where she really felt at home. Of course before she lived here it was someone she visited as a child. She saw a lot of her grandparents, her grandfather George V when he was here. At one point, she stayed here for three months at Buckingham Palace and she would be brought down for tea every day with the King and Queen. Queen Mary, with a reputation for being a bit stiff and informal, would declare, Here comes the bambino! In fact, it was after the abdication of her uncle and the news that her father would become king, that she was told that she was going to move to Buckingham Palace. What, the young Elizabeth said, you mean forever? For most of us, I suppose, we thought that she would be here forever this is just an extraordinary thing so many moments in our national life marked by the queen appearing on the balcony i can see now most recently of course uh, for the end of the platinum jubilee celebrations standing tall with her children her grandchildren as they watch the red arrows fly overhead in due course her coffin will be brought to the throne room of the palace while outside here on the plaza thousands of people gather leave flowers, take photos, and try to make sense of it all. Above me right now, the royal standard is fluttering in the wind beneath a a grey sky, which of course means that King Charles III is now in residence at Buckingham Palace. I am deeply aware
5: of this great inheritance and of the duties and heavy responsibilities of sovereignty. Which have now passed to me.
1: A palace which has seen so many happy moments in our national life over the past, what, 70 years. And now people gathering for the saddest of all national moments. So heading now back down the mile, sort of going against the, swimming against the tide almost, the number of people who are making their way down the Mall towards Buckingham Palace. On the day that the Queen died there were black cabs lined uh, this route, such a stark contrast to just a few months ago the Jubilee celebrations when thousands of people uh, were on the Mall for uh, the parades and the the celebrations. Your Majesty Mummy And then just turning from the end of the Mall down past the uh, Horse Guards Parade, where again over the years the Queen has been able to celebrate well her love of horses as much as anything else, taking the salute on while, while riding, riding a horse herself until uh, very recently. In fact, it's almost impossible to walk down any one of these streets and not be reminded of some, some iconic image of the Queen.
5: The royal pageant on Horse Guards Parade celebrated the Queen's official birthday. Family spectators included a very young admirer of military ceremonial. In her specially designed Grenadier's uniform, scarlet tunic, dark blue skirt, and tricorn hat, Her Majesty rode with great dignity to take salute at Trooping the Colour.
1: So, walking past now the uh, the back of Downing Street, and then the Treasury, the very offices of state, if you like. Stranger the Queen didn't go to Downing Street all that often in her 70-year reign. It was, well, she could pull rank, I suppose, and uh, make sure the Prime Ministers came to her. But as we just turn left now, round the front of the Treasury, and there in front of us is that, well, it's put perhaps the most famous image, certainly uh, the most famous building, as famous perhaps as the image of the Queen of, uh, of Big Ben, of, of the Elizabeth Tower, of course. We all call it Big Ben was renamed as the Elizabeth Tower in honour of Queen Elizabeth II. Of course after a, two days of tributes in the House of Commons and the Lords uh, Parliament now suspended as part of the national mourning and to allow the preparations uh, to take place converting what is a, a busy workplace and working Parliament to accommodate the lying in state of Her Majesty the Queen, Elizabeth II.
4: In the hours since last night's shocking news, we have witnessed the most heartfelt outpouring of grief at the loss of Her Late Majesty the Queen.
1: MPs and their staff have been told not to come in unless they absolutely have to. The canteens are to stay open 24 hours a day because so many people will be working literally round the clock to prepare the Palace of Westminster. Remember, it's a royal palace We call it the Houses of Parliament and we always think of the green benches and the the political shenanigans that go on here, but it's the Palace of Westminster, it's the Royal Palace and uh, that's very much the focus over the coming days here. And there it is, Westminster Hall, which will become such a focus in the coming days from the outside perhaps the part of the building that tourists miss is the bit you queue up next to to come in and have a tour whatever it might be well it was built what in 1097 Uh, I think King Canute was the first monarch to live in the Westminster area that's how long this part of, of England of Britain has been associated with the monarch the Westminster Hall as it now stands has been changed and chopped and had more more renovations than I don't know, Grand Designs would know what to do with it. I think it was Richard II first raised the roof. It's it's notable, if you're into this sort of thing, for its single-span hammer-beamed roof that dates back to somewhat the 14th century. And as you walk through this uh, hall, this Grand Hall, you see the metal plates on the floor, which mark where previous monarchs and the great and the good have been allowed to lie in state here in Westminster Hall. There's a plaque for Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, for Winston Churchill, for the Queen's parents, King George VI and Queen Mary, King George V too, for Edward VII and even going all the way back to 1898, William Glanston lay in state here. That's the history that lies in this vast, vast building. Indeed, you. You may watch the House of Commons or the House of Lords and think, golly, that looks old, but the House of Commons dates from the 1950s after it was destroyed in the Second World War. But you have to go back to 1512, when Henry VIII moved out of the Palace of Westminster. It started being used as an extended part of the Crown Estate. It's also from Westminster Hall, the, the Queen and many others have addressed both Houses of Parliament.
5: My Lords and Members of the House of Commons, I am most grateful for your loyal addresses and the generous words of the Lord Speaker and Mr Speaker.
1: Queen Elizabeth II addressed both MPs and peers here in 2012, 2002, 1998, 1977 to mark her silver jubilee.
5: Perhaps this jubilee is a time to remind ourselves of the benefits which union has conferred at home and in our international dealings on the inhabitants of all parts of this united kingdom
1: in the meantime Nelson Mandela, Pope Benedict, Barack Obama, Aung San Suu Kyi, Charles de Gaulle even have spoken from these steps. I
2: am told that the last
1: Three speakers. Here have been the Pope,
2: Her Majesty the Queen, and Nelson Mandela, which is either a very high bar or the beginning of a very funny joke.
1: (laughs) And now large teams of people are busy preparing the hall for perhaps one of its most momentous dates in its extraordinary history, when Queen Elizabeth II will lie in state here surrounded by her children, with hundreds of thousands of people given the opportunity to pay their respects. So now as I leave with Big Ben high behind me, Westminster Hall to my left, on my way out into Parliament Square towards, I can see the pale white brick of Westminster Abbey where the Queen's funeral will take place, her state funeral. The first state funeral service at the Abbey for a British monarch is that of George II in 1760. All the way back to George III, the funerals of British kings and queens have been in St George's Chapel in Windsor. So it's a break with tradition that the Queen herself decided that her funeral should be in the larger, much more public surroundings of Westminster Abbey where the coronation of every English monarch has been held since William I in 1066. And even standing outside it and making my way up towards the door, you can see it's enormous. It technically has a capacity of about 2,000, although it can hold as much as 8,000, which is about ten times more than St George's Chapel down in Windsor. And so from here at Westminster Abbey, the very public aspect of the farewell to Queen Elizabeth II will come to a close. From here her coffin will be drawn in a walking procession in a gun carriage to Wellington Arch at Hyde Park Corner where it will be transferred to a state hearse. And then it will make its final journey towards St George's Chapel in Windsor Castle where a service will be held during which the coffin will be lowered into the Royal Vault. So from the most public, the most famous buildings in central London, from the place of her birth in Mayfair, to where she served the country at Buckingham Palace, to the Palace of Westminster where so many Prime Ministers and Ministers served at her pleasure, and from the historic building of Westminster Abbey. The country will then say its final farewell to Queen Elizabeth II. just heard my walkabout around uh, central London. And uh, so now our attention turns to Westminster Hall. Queues are up to five miles of people expected as people wait to uh, pay their respects to the late Queen. General Central line State from tomorrow at Westminster Hall. Uh, so let's take a look at the history of itself, where Prince Charles himself, uh, sorry, King Charles yesterday, addressed uh, Lords and MPs and talked about the weight of history Uh, speaking in that uh, extraordinary building. Well, Dr Dorian Gerald is a historian, former House of Commons clerk, who can take us through some of the the history of it all. Uh, Good morning. Good morning. Um, I suppose uh, a potted history, uh, because there's there's a lot of history to get through. Uh, Take us right back to
5: the the origins of, of Westminster Hall itself. So it was built by William II, William Rufus, who was the son of the Conqueror. Uh, We know it was being built in 1097, and it was available for use for a banquet two years later. Um, from that building, we still have the walls, which are six feet thick. Um, And no king has ever looked at it and thought, this isn't big enough, I must make it bigger. Uh, It was probably always a single space without columns. So you have an enormous space for banquets, political events and so on. By the time Richard II comes along um, in the 1390s, he wants something more magnificent. It's old fashioned. The roof is probably failing. Um, So he raises the walls two feet. Um, This is in the 1390s. He puts in the present windows, including the big ones at the north and south ends, and he creates the astonishing roof. Um, with the arch and the hammer beams, and that's 660 tonnes of timber sitting up there, and the weight is adequately conveyed down to the ground. And the only really subsequent change to the building was uh, by Charles Barry in the 1850s, when he was building the new Palace of Westminster, and he put in the steps at the south end and set back the south window. Um, So when it's built, it's part of a occupied royal palace it's a place for for banquets it's at the business end of the palace so it gets the administrative offices and the law courts when they arrive um and uh, parliament doesn't meet in the hall itself but it meets nearby yeah state trials take place there coronation banquets and more recently lyings in state and really you couldn't find another building that's been so Continuously involved in the life of a nation for so long, but both England to start with and then Britain. And and you're completely right. one of the things that really struck me when
1: I was looking at the history of it is it sort of played a role in every part of what we now consider the state, if you like. There's royal banquets and and uh, coronation banquets, but then also, like you said, justice has been mated out there. The trial, you know, various trials we'll talk about in a moment. Judges mm. sitting there, and now of course it's the sort of seat of. Of, of, of parliament and so it's sort of it's extraordinary and it is it's impossible really to ex- describe just how vast it is um uh, to someone who's who's not seen it so let's take us through some of the um let's pick our way through some of the things uh we uh, uh, henry the tennis balls it's it, it, when i first started working in parliament what 17 18 years ago i was told about william
5: there uh, henry the tennis balls um is it true I'm not a believer. They, when they <laughs> repaired the roof early in the last century, they found some balls in the roof, which might have been tennis balls. Although I think they've since been lost. Um, and someone said, well, it's Henry VIII playing tennis. But he had tennis courts elsewhere at Whitehall and Westminster, and it would be real tennis. And you don't need a vast open space for that. You need <laughs> uh, something with walls you can hit the ball off. It's more so-
1: like a sort of squash court, isn't it? Real tennis. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So, well, so that's, a, that, that, that was I probably doubt not that sure. story. <laughs> uh, the story. Um, as we were reflecting uh, yesterday, it's where uh, the new king's uh, namesake, Charles I, went on trial. Mm. Uh, he was sentenced to death there. Uh, and then, after the monarchy was restored under Charles II, there was an extraordinary trial of those who'd removed Charles I, including Oliver Cromwell, who had died in the interim.
5: Explain what happened then. Um, the, the people who'd signed the death warrant were excluded from the act of indemnity that, that gave people um, immunity for what they'd done during the interregnum um, when Charles II came back. And many of them were executed. But Cromwell, being dead, had to be dug up and a, a sort of pseudo-execution on his remains had to take place. And then, is the story true about his head? Oh, yes, almost certainly it is. Did, did, yes. just,
1: just to explain what happened to uh, to Cromwell's head. Um, well,
5: obviously it was severed from the body, yeah. Um, yeah. and there's there's quite a, a good sort of well provenance. I think is the word the art people use as to where the he, where the head was in subsequent years.
1: And wasn't it hung on the door of Westminster Hall for some time as well as a sort of warning to others not to not to consider removing the monarchy again. I'm not aware of oh. that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is what I suppose is the thing about a building which is so uh, so extraordinary in our history. There's sort of lots of mm. myths get attached to it. And although we're talking yeah. obviously a lot about the lying in state of uh, of uh, Queen Elizabeth II, which will begin uh, tomorrow in a great historic building, but actually was it only Edward VII in 1910 that there was the first royal lying in state? That that's
5: a relatively new thing in the that's,
1: history of the building.
5: That's right. They'd had the lying in state of. William Gladstone in 1898. Um, and then in 1910, they decided that they would have a royal lying in state. There was some criticism because some people thought, well, it ought to be in Westminster Abbey or St. Paul's Cathedral. But I, I would think it, it was the magnificence of the space and its sombre quality that um, caused them to use uh, um, Westminster Hall yeah. and subsequently all subsequent monarchs and their consorts. Um, possibly not Queen Alexandra. Um, have lain in state there. Yeah,
1: no, so it was, I think it was George the Fifth, uh, George the Sixth, Queen Mary, uh, and then Winston Churchill in 1965, um, and, and then and uh, Queen Mother, and of and,
5: course the Queen Mother the, in 2002. Which, yeah. And the only other one was the victims of the airship disaster, the R101, in 1930, when 48 coffins were brought into the hall. Um, I was reading about it. Is that just because? <laughs> Why was
1: that? Because, I mean, clearly before and since then there have been, you know, various disasters. What was it particularly about that one or or that moment in history that meant
5: that, that it was decided to use Westminster Hall for that? I don't think there's any logic to it um, yeah. in terms of a rule. Um, no doubt. At the time, um, there was a desire to do something and someone had the idea of Westminster Hall, which... Yeah. Um, it hasn't been used similarly since. I no, it was, it was sort of one of those things. I wondered
1: why it hadn't um, sort of caught on uh, subsequently. Well, it's absolutely fascinating. I could talk, about, talk to you about this all day, uh, if only to, to prove how many of the stories that I thought were true uh, turned out it were. Uh, Dr. Dorian Dor- uh, Gerald, uh, thanks so much for d- joining us today. A historian and former House of Commons clerk. Uh, so now when you're uh, when you're seeing what I, what I suspect will be a lot of pictures of Westminster Hall over the coming days, you'll be able to uh, well, impress your friends with some... Some uh, facts about that, although lots of them turn out not, not to be facts. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget, you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, ten till one on Times Radio. and We bring you the best bits here on the podcast, and if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast
0: from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.